Today we're in Mark chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 16 to 32. Mark 15, 16 to 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we come together and hear of your word, that we would hear from our Christ. Please speak to our hearts. Please show us, Lord Jesus, your power. The power that you exemplified there on this day, on that cross. Teach us your ways. Teach us the ways of your kingdom. And may we also walk in them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a popular television show where the plot involves an alternate reality that breaks into the present world. And that alternate reality is called the upside down because the world is something of an opposite world that we inhabit. The force that lives in the upside down wants to bring the realities of his world into the lives of some teenagers in Indiana in the 1980s. In the TV show, our world is the place of goodness, and the upside down is one of darkness. And the characters, they do their best to play the heroes and seal off our world from the upside down world that's trying to break in. They are the good guys, keeping the darkness and the evil at bay. There is a similarity to that work of fiction here in the Gospel of Mark. There is an alternate reality out there that exists parallel to the world that we are in. 
a kind of upside down. And there is a being who has invaded our present world from that upside down to try and bring his realities and his world to bear on the present world that we live in. But in the true biblical account, our world is the one of darkness, and his world is a world of light. And though men and their powers in this present age will do their best to try to seal him off from our world, and they do not want his upside world coming into ours, their powers cannot stop Jesus Christ. Throughout this story, we have watched Jesus engage the brokenness of our world. It's full of sin, isn't it? It's full of sickness. It's full of demonic activity. It's the stuff of normal life that the inhabitants of this world have gotten used to while they are here. Men and women in Jesus' day had learned to live alongside the demon-possessed, the sick, the dying, their oppressors. But here comes this man into our world who is able to heal the lame. He's able to cast out the demons. He's able to make well the sick. He speaks of a place where none of these things exist. Things that we have also gotten used to in our world. Those things are normal. All we have to do is look at the headlines out there right now. and We see that we live in a sin-sick world. But he tells us the sadnesses that we have grown accustomed to. They do not exist in his world, in his upside down. And not only does he show the physical differences between his world and ours, he shows that his world has a different value system than ours does. Jesus has been teaching his disciples about this value system as they followed him to Jerusalem. They've shown their interest in power. They want worldly power. They want to be above one another. They want to elevate self, while Jesus has taught them that the highest value in his upside-down world is given to servanthood, humility, sacrificial love. And Jesus' mission as the missionary from heaven is to not only teach these men what heaven is like, but to prepare them to live in that place. He's getting them ready. He's getting us ready to live in his world. And so they are to begin living out the realities of his upside down while here. And he doesn't just teach these values in words. He shows these values through his own actions, what he does. And by what he does, he opens up the way for them to go back with him into the upside down, a land, a land flowing forever with servant love. It sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? But you see, fairy tales find something of their nature here in the story of Jesus, not, not the other way around. At this point in the story, Jesus is on the brink of finishing his mission. He's right at the edge. He's obeyed the Father's will all the way. And he is on the lonely path of death. 
He's taught the kingdom to his followers. He's loved them to the end. He's been betrayed by one of his inner circle. He has been tried in a mock court by the religious leaders. He's been handed over to the Roman leaders. And even though he was clearly innocent, Pontius Pilate saw that, Jesus has been sentenced to die. But he is not done teaching those who look on. And that includes us. As we peer through the portal of God's word. And what we see is the king of heaven is demonstrating power from another world. The values of his world are on full display as Jesus is mocked, as he suffers, and then is crucified. This section is marked by mocking voices that participate in the death of Jesus. Primarily two sources, the Roman soldiers and the chief priests. Jesus suffers at the hands of both, Jew and Gentile. Starting there at verse 16, we see how he suffers at the hands of the Roman soldiers. We read there that the soldiers led him away inside the palace calling together the whole battalion, lots of soldiers. This would have been about 600 men that would have gathered together to see this, to participate in this. They dress him as a king in a purple robe, color of royalty. They twist together a crown of thorns and stick it down on his head. They salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Some kneel before him and spit on him. They had handed him a staff, a reed. It had been his royal staff. They then take it from him and they hit him with it. And when they'd finished having their fun, they stripped Jesus of his mock royal clothes, put his own clothes back onto him and lead him away. None of the writers in any of the gospel accounts detail the crucifixion. They don't tell us where the nails went exactly. They don't give us any details about what crucifixion was, how it was used in Roman executions. None of them focus on the physical suffering that Jesus endured. And Mark here, he gives us about as few details as possible. We're simply told in verse 24 that after they had gotten to the place of the skull, Golgotha, that they crucified him. That's what he gives us. And then in verse 25, he tells us when they did it. It was the third hour, about 9 a.m. But Mark's readers, they would have known what crucifixion was in all its gory details. Many would have witnessed it. Many would have walked by and seen its horror on the roadside. It was meant to maximize the pain and the suffering of its victims and to deter other people from wanting to oppose Rome. This is what will happen to you if you do what they did. You oppose the state, this will come to you. The crucifixions would have taken place not in a hidden place. They wouldn't have done this out of sight so that nobody would have been exposed to the horror of it. They made sure it was done on the roadside in a very public place so all could have seen it. 
John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes this about crucifixion. Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken from them by Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, except in extreme cases of treason. Cicero, in one of his speeches, condemned it as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And this man, Cicero, he lived in a society where people would have been sent to the Colosseum to die at the hands or at the paws or the teeth of animals. He also would have lived in a time where Caesars would have put men up on stakes and put some sort of fluid on top of them and made them human torches. And he says that this was the worst form of execution. And this is the death that your Savior went to die. And Mark simply says here, and they crucified him. What a loaded statement that was. And as they nailed Jesus to that cross, they hung above him a placard. Apparently this was a normal custom that they would put above the criminal what their crime was. Murderer, insurrectionist, robber. Above Jesus's, it simply said the king of the Jews. We read elsewhere that the Jews didn't want that written of him, but Pilate had it put there just to twist a little bit in their side. This is your king, and this is why he will die. But in so doing, as he wrote that or had that written, He had Jesus' identity confessed before everyone that this was the king. The same way that those Roman soldiers did as they saluted him and knelt before him, confessing that he is the king, though it was in mocking tones. Many passed by, were told, and saw him. Days before, these same people... They would have heard him teach with authority, with power about the kingdom of God. They would have followed him about, marveling at him. Now we see that they marvel in a different way. They wag their heads. And they say, you told us that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now save yourself. And come down from the cross. You say you had all this power. Where is it now? Standing underneath that placard. The chief priests also gather. They also mock him. They hate him this much. That after they've carried out their plot. Their wicked plan has been carried through to the point where he is on the cross. They can't even leave him alone now. 
They come together and speak. They say he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, I'll bet you would. They simply want to mock him, scoff at him. They delight in his misery. And in all of this, Jesus is demonstrating a strange kind of kingship, a kind of power from the land of his world, the upside down. And it's in the statement of these priests, the things that they say to him, where we find a half-truth. They say, he saved others. True. He saved many. We can go back through the Gospel of Mark and see that. He saved many people. But then they also say, he cannot save himself. False. But I want to restate what they say here in a full truth. He saved others because he did not save himself. He now, today, saves others because he did not save himself on that day. Salvation comes to men, past and present, because Jesus chose not to come down from the cross. That's the truth of the matter. Yes, he saves others. How does he save others? By not coming down. So these men, they call out to him to show off his powers. They say, if you show your power right now that you say you have, and come down from there, then we're going to believe. But Jesus came to show his power in a most ironic way. Jesus' power was most, most on display in the moment of his greatest weakness. The only way that he could save others was by sacrificing himself. The power that he put on display in that moment was not a worldly power, a worldly strength. It was love, which is the fundamental, fundamental value of Jesus' kingdom. So they were calling for a worldly power that they could identify with physical strength. Miraculous ability to pop those nails out of his hands and his feet and descend in a way they claimed would make them believe in him. But the stuff of Jesus' kingdom, his power, a power that overwhelms us and causes us to believe, was in his love. To stay on that cross, not saving himself, so that we, brothers and sisters, could be saved. They did not understand that kind of power. But I hope that you do.
It is the wisdom of God to confound worldly wisdom, people like this, and reveal it as to babes, as to children, who can see the great power of their Savior on a cross. I wonder what we would have been like that day if we were there. What would you have wished to see? Oh, Jesus, why do you stand there like you are and let those soldiers spit on you and hit you? Why do you do that? We know you could do far more. Call down angels from heaven and smite every one of them. When the first one touched his head with that reed, a sieve from heaven could have come down and devoured all 600 of those men in one fail swoop like that. And those priests, as they gathered at the foot of the cross, what would you have liked to have seen right then? Standing from a distance. We'd have liked to have seen their faces as Jesus popped those nails out of his hands and out of his legs, robed himself in glowing white and melted their faces off as if they'd just stared into the Ark of the Covenant. We would have cried out for justice. Bring it, God. But you know, justice was there. Justice for my sin was there. Justice for your sin was there that day, and it was given to him. He took justice. He stayed on the cross so that we could get mercy and love. Love led him to do that. That was his power. And yes, it looked weak that day. But it was his greatest act of power in his three years of ministry. To stay there and not come down. And brothers and sisters, he invites you this morning. As you see him by faith, as you look at him, he invites you to see him there in weakness before evil men, to receive his love and his great power from another world. He still saves others because he did not save himself. And I wonder this morning, have you all seen him, every one of you? Have you seen him at this moment of weakness? Have you looked on there at the cross and experienced the power of Jesus Christ's love in yourself? It is a life-transforming love from another world. Heaven has broken through into our world 
and done what we never would have planned ourselves. God has made a way for us to find our way home to him. And it was because Jesus Christ did not come down that you and I have an opportunity to go back with him. Have you seen it? Have you confessed it? Do you believe with all your heart that if today was your last day on earth, that you would be, as he told one of these thieves, not in this particular passage but elsewhere, that today you will be with me in paradise? Will you confess that Jesus Christ has saved me because he did not save himself? You and I, we need this Savior. Not another Savior, not one of our own devising. Not a Marvel superhero Savior. We need this Savior. And our flesh, our pride, our self-sufficiency will rail against him, but God opens up our eyes to our own brokenness, our own need, and brings us to a point where we will call on him for mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. And he offers it in full because of his great love for sinners like you and a sinner like me. So will you look on him today, on the cross, choosing not to come down so that he can save a sinner like you? Let's pray together. And as we pray, if the worship team will come back up on the stage. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the plain and simple truth of the gospel that you sent your son to be nailed to a cross in obedience to you and out of love for us and he completed his mission to the full as men like us stood at the base and mocked him and out of love for sinners in our weakness, in our depravity, he looked on in love and stayed there for us. So would you please give us eyes to see him this morning, hanging there, suffering the wrath of God on our account. He is our substitute. He is our Passover lamb. And he was willing to die there and shed his blood to cleanse us. So God, would you please give us a heart of worship as we see our Savior to be thankful for his death, a necessary death, so that you could open up the way, the narrow gate for us to walk through in faith, believing that this is all we need. We don't need any other works of righteousness of our own. Jesus Christ has done everything for us. We simply need to look at him and see this Savior and believe 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you draw men into your kingdom from this world of darkness and brokenness into a kingdom of light and healing forever. Give us eyes, God, to see that and worship Him as He deserves. And so as we prepare to sing this last song, we pray, God, that the words of it would be ours, that we would say, He is worthy. He is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my heart. He is worthy of my obedience. He is worthy of my life. He owns me. I belong to Him. He has bought me with his blood. I pray, God, that every person in this room would believe that and confess that with their hearts and with their mouths. Please make it so. Work with your spirit. By the power of your word, speak, Lord Jesus, to our hearts. And we ask it all in his powerful name. Power that comes from another world that shows itself in weakness but changes the human heart a dead heart, and gives it life. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.